Some years ago, somewhere in London, we were talking, a group of us, about history and stuff, when the broad topic of World War II came up. We all agreed that the UK, US, USSR, that alliance won World War II against the Axis powers, and that it was only really a world war because European powers could fight many theatres and bring on many of the imperial natives to fight for them. We also agreed that after the war, the Europeans lost their land to be filled by the US bases that are dotted around the world today, but the Soviets kept their empire. We also agreed that in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, that empire collapsed too, but it collapsed with a twist. Russia was and still is a massive enough country to be envious of in terms of size and resources. But one group overall was left paramount. One of my friends, a Nigerian, said, and he pointed to the ground and the air and all around, i.e. England, that these guys won, the Anglos. There, and I'm quoting him, they're the master race. They even beat the Slavs or the Russians in the 1990s. The Anglos in the group were quite taken aback. But I was actually thinking, hmm, yeah, maybe there is some truth to that. And by the way, I am not Anglo. Although I've lived in the Anglosphere, I am not Anglo. Since the Anglos defeated the French, led by Napoleon, back in 1815, they've had pretty much a free ride, although it would seem that they've had a free ride. You see, the Germans tried twice. They failed. The Japanese tried. Failed. The Ottomans tried. Failed. The Arabs tried. Failed. The Mexicans tried. Failed. Cubans failed. Spanish failed. It's an unstoppable train, this whole Anglo experiment. They have the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. At least it would seem. The adjacent countries in the pacified Western collective, such as Germany or Spain, plus a couple of non-Western pacified countries like Japan and South Korea can be bolt-ons to the core Anglo-Saxon collective. Did they actually become A or D? master race in 1991 when the USSR collapsed? Or did they not? And is it up to now, I guess, the Chinese to break that dominance? Maybe, maybe not. As of publishing this episode, let me tell you, almost 18% of the world's landmass is one of the five Anglo-Saxon countries. Just 6% of the world's population is Anglo-Saxon in those countries, but they collectively consist of 33% of the world's military spending. But first, let's take a step back. Who are the Anglos that make up the Anglosphere and what will happen to them? So let's look at this in some detail. Winston Churchill wrote about the English-speaking peoples and did a lot of legwork to bring the main English-speaking countries together, especially after they had fought in two world wars and were indeed about to face off against the Soviets in what would become the Cold War. In my humble view, Churchill captured the essence of the Anglosphere, a ethnic, linguistic, cultural, and above all, military-political group of five mostly Protestant countries the five eyes of the UK, US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. I'm going to look at a few things here. And I'm going to look at 
the tribes, the race of these people, culture, language, and geopolitics. The Anglo-Saxons were, yes, were a cultural group who inhabited England in the early Middle Ages. Yes, they were. They're not are. Keep in mind, culturally, identity is a part of a person's, well, identity, or at least their self-conception and their self-perception. And it is related to stuff like nationality, ethnicity, religion, social class, generation, locality. But beware, culture is not a biological thing. It's a mindset. Meaning, you can adopt culture. Biological is stuff like skin pigmentation, blood type. Culture, it's invented. So, who are these Anglos or Anglo-Saxons? Anglo-Saxon identity arose from some interaction, interaction in inverted commas, between incoming groups from several Germanic tribes and amongst themselves with indigenous Britons who were already on the island of Great Britain. So let's break this down. First, when was this? Early Middle Ages, about 5th to 10th century AD, i.e. post-fall of the Roman Empire, or at least the Western Roman Empire. The population back in those days was contained and managed by disease, violence, hunger, and other factors. In other words, there were not even a billion people on the entire planet. But let's assume the population of the British Isles would have been around the 100,000 mark. So we are looking at small population sizes. Who were these Germanic tribes and who were these ethnic Britons? The Romans named the area in which Germanic peoples lived, Germania, so it's their word, stretching from east to west between the Vistula River and the Rhine River and north to south from southern Scandinavia to the upper Dubain uh, Valley area. Not to be confused with Germans of today, the Germanic peoples were a historical group of people that once occupied Central Europe and Scandinavia and it was during antiquity and well into the early Middle Ages. The Romans called this lot barbarians. The Britons were Celtic peoples who inhabited the island of modern Great Britain from at least the Iron Age to the Middle Ages, at which point they kind of mishmashed into the Welsh, Cornish, and Bretons, among others. They spoke a common-ish Britonic language at the time. Now, the Celts are a bunch of tribes that had sketchy connections at best amongst each other. Everything from Welsh to Gauls in modern Switzerland considered Celtics. The Swiss and the Welsh have little in common today. Imagine what connection they had then. I would say very low. But anyway, to use that often cited and brilliant Roman technical term for the Britons, they too were barbarians. So Britons and the Germanic tribes were both barbarians. Anglo-Saxon is a term that was rarely used by the Anglo-Saxons themselves. It is likely that they identified as Angeli, Saxi, or more probably with local tribal names such as the Mercy, the Canti, the Wetsaxi, or the Northambri. After the Viking Age, an Anglo-Scandinavian identity developed in that area that was ultimately to be called the Danelaw, and I'll get to that in a bit. The Angles, by the way, would be from an area and also a tribe from what is today modern Denmark, Saxons from Germany, and there is a modern Saxony in Germany even today. Again, remember, population size in those days were a lot less. Small tribes, small tribes, small tribes. Now, that's an extremely, extremely quick and extremely dirty covering of the Anglo-Saxons. 
you can't really separate these Anglo-Saxons from the local Britons because they were the tribes that the Germanic ones encountered when they landed in what is now England. Historically, and this is an important footnote, the Anglo-Saxon period is the period between 450 AD and 1066. The year 1066, of course, was the year of the Norman conquest of England. These Anglo-Saxon settlements of Britain were that process that changed the language and culture of most of what became England, from the Romano-British to the Germanic. The Germanic speakers in Britain, themselves of diverse origins, eventually developed a common cultural identity as Anglo-Saxons, or that's what we call them today. Oh, and I want to add one more thing to this ethnic cauldron. So the Anglo-Saxons regarded the word Weising as synonymous with the word pirate, and in several old English sources, Weising is translated into the Latin pirata. It was not seen as a reference to nationality, with other terms such as, for example, nationalities like the Danes or even the Northmen. Weising is, of course, Vikings, and these being the Scandinavian peoples that I mentioned earlier who invaded England. The earliest recorded raids were in the 790s AD, and it lasted all the way through to the Norman conquest in 1066. So you do have to consider the Normans, who incidentally were also Northmen, i.e. settled Vikings no less, with a heavy Frankish-French influence, as also Anglos. So then you have now an England with these Anglo-Saxons, Britons, Vikings, Danes, mixing with Normans and Franks. Quite the hodgepodge of stuff. Over the years, eventually, after the multiple wars against France, including that Hundred Years' War, the English, known also as the Anglo-Saxon, Briton, Viking, Dane, Norman, Frankish types, gained an identity of their own, cemented by the likes of the English kings Edward III, Henry V, and ultimately the Tudors. The Tudors, by the way, were Welsh. But don't let that fool you. Wales was subdued by the English at this point. After the Tudors came the Scots, and that in the form of the Stuart dynasty. If this were an M&A, i.e. a merger and acquisition deal, then it would be considered a reverse takeover, where though James VII also became James I of England, it was the English dominance that was most noticeable in the British Isles after the Stuart ascendancy. The next big shift came with the Glorious Revolution that brought in some Dutch, well, Mary II's husband, William of Orange, and a few of his folks. Not really an invasion, more like an invite. This was the last real successful, if you can call it that, invasion of England. Yep, that was the Dutch. In 1714, the Stuart line ended with the death of Queen Anne, thus starting a new line with George I and the House of Hanover. Hanover, by the way, is in Germany, and these things go in circles, from Saxons back to Hanoverians. Again, no real demographic shifts taking place with the arrival of the Hanoverians, just the royal family changing. No invasion. Oh, but that brings me to the topic of Anglican Protestant Christianity. This being the soul and heart, not heart and soul, but soul and heart of this religion of the Anglos, the English religion. With the official formation of the United Kingdom in 1707, the Anglos soon began to encompass not just the English, but Welsh, Scots, and even the Irish. And by the way, not these folks were not always interested about the English. The UK then became the single biggest land empire in history. That had serious implications for the propagation of the 
Anglo-Saxon, British, Viking, Dane, Frankish, Norman, etc., 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 world. With the advent of empire, more so its collapse, many from the empire moved back to the UK, namely Indians, West Indians, Pakistanis, and indeed many others, adding those cultures into the Anglosphere. After joining the European Union, many Europeans moved to the UK, including from Eastern Europe. All this stuff changes the face of the Anglos. Like my episode on the Aryan tribes in India, the Anglo-Saxons were a bunch of small tribes, and ethnically, there are probably no real Anglo-Saxons around anymore. So when we talk about the Anglo-Saxons and the Anglosphere today, it is cultural and not ethnic. Over the centuries, people have been gobbled up by various waves of intermarriages and interracial engagements. And that's the same for the Anglo-Saxons as it is for, say, the Indian Aryans, the Franks, the Arabs. It, there isn't, at least in my view, a pure-blood Anglo-Saxon person around. I, I'm not sure, but I think so. And I mean, there may be one. It could be you, but I have some questions and doubts about that. So in sum, today, today, as a race and as a tribe, it's negligible who really is an Anglo true to the word. But that isn't the case for the language, the culture, and so on. So I suggest we turn our attention away from the tribal and the ethnic and the racial to the cultural and the linguistic. Of course, the Anglos from the year 1022 and 2022 are not the same. The language is not the same, nor is the culture. That's not unusual because things happen and stuff changes. So the best way to look at this is what traditions have the Anglo-Saxon built to get here to the Anglosphere. Anglican Christianity for one. I mentioned that a few minutes ago, and it's important. It's Protestant Protestantism with a twist of lemon. You know, the English like to do their stuff their own way. Sometimes the term used is WASP, W-A-S-P. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. The English language is also a critical tradition. Via empire, it spread to a ton of lands across this planet. Then, of course, you must acknowledge the culture. Stuff like Shakespeare, Wordsworth, the Beatles. Coupled with that, you have the big, huge myths. Such as the stories and histories of Alfred the Great, Edward the Confessor, William the Conqueror, Edward the Black Prince, Henry V, Wars of the Roses, Richard III, Henry VIII and his eight wives, even the stories around the world wars, the battle against Napoleon, even football World Cup wins and losses. But that's not it, not by a long shot. I mentioned empire, but in that empire, the lands that are today the United States, Canada, Australia and New Zealand have a special place as the epicenter of what we call the Anglosphere. They are the English-speaking offshoots of the British Isles, or certainly of England. Similar laws and customs reign. But unlike other parts of the now former British Empire, these lands are culturally, historically, linguistically, ethnically, they are little Britons away from Britain. Other than the US, the four countries still have the British monarch as the head of state. Think about this. If you're Australian or American, do you study native history more? Or do you study Shakespeare? Do you admire Churchill more or a chief from a native tribe? Your ancestors are European. Your culture is Anglo. England is the motherland. Europe is the hinterland. And God is great. London, New York, Sydney, Toronto, and Auckland are all Anglo cities. 
Hollywood is as much Australian as it is American. Fish and chips is as much Canadian as it is British, English. I mean, you know what I mean. But wait, 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 wait. Not so fast. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. The modern Anglosphere is not the same animal as 580 England. What is Ireland? Republic of Ireland? What is Quebec? The Maori? Australian Aborigines? Native Americans? First Nations of Canada? What indeed about the Welsh and Scots? And all those people from the old empire in Eastern Europe in England, Mexicans in the US, Asians in Canada and Australia. Ethnically, they're not Anglo-Saxon, Viking, Dane, Norman, Frankish, whatever. Today, inside the system, the Anglo-system, the Anglosphere has groups that are distinctly not even being close to Anglos, and Anglicization has been sketchy with these groups. The Latinos in the US are anything but Anglos, for example. I want to spend the rest of this episode think about what will happen to the Anglosphere in the near and medium-term future. I'll break it down to three distinct parts. One, demographics of the Anglosphere. Two, soft power, stuff like language and culture. Three, hard power, geopolitics and military. So let's start with demographics. This is quite a bit important because it, ethnic or tribal or racial, call it what you want, is important and a tad bit critical to the survival of the Anglosphere. Or is it? Let's think about this for a moment. The typical idea of an Anglosphere is a white person with some heritage to the British Isles, ideally to England, speaking the English language, and as I've said already, they ideally have something connecting back to the Anglo-Saxons somehow, though that assertion is sketchy in my mind. That said, the ethnic connection is also dicey today, and into the future it will remain dicey and probably get increasingly patchy. If you look at the most heavily populated Anglophone country, the United States, you'll note that the immigration to that country isn't all from the UK, let alone England. That being said, they do have strong policies of Anglicization of immigrants. English remains a paramount language. Rules and laws half back to the UK, then Rome and Greece, just as the British would like to trace their own civilization. And they learn about fighting world wars and hold myths similar and beliefs similar to the UK and its past. Have you ever known a Danish-American, British-American, English-American, German-American? It is hard to find those hyphens with the Northern Europeans. You know, the Germanic and Breton peoples don't have the same hyphens. They're just Americans. I'm, of course, mass generalizing, so please don't think I'm leading you down a dodgy alleyway. I am, however, making the point that hyphens only start with the likes of the Irish, as in Irish-Americans, Italians, so Italian-Americans, and so on and so forth. There are just more of those hyphens with the non-Northern Europeans. At least, that's my experience of the U.S. Okay, nevertheless, even with the Irish and Greeks and other Europeans, the enforcement of English language, a few history lessons, a generation or two, and some mixed marriages later, you get results in the future where people are pretty much anglicized. Where it gets murky, though, is when non-Europeans are put in the mix. Mexicans, Brazilians, Russians, Indians, Filipinos, Vietnamese, Kenyans, and so on. In this situation, the anglicization tribally is hard. They look different, worship different, many cases think different. They often like the idea of America, but they hate the idea of American imperialism or the American obsession with war, Europe, and the Middle East. They think different. So how do you anglify that? It's not easy. 
in Canada, you already have had French Quebec. That is not at all anglophone. French, if anything, is the opposite of anglophone. Oh, and if the U.S. is becoming a Latin American country demographically, Canada is becoming Asian country demographically, as is Australia, while New Zealand is too. So what's going to happen here? Well, it's hard to say. They could retain the anglophone heritage and identity, or they could lose it. My hunch is that you'll see a bit of a hybrid. You'll see less links back to England and more with their region. Where this will matter really is international relations. Because as demographics shift, it's likely that the North Americans, Australians, and New Zealanders will simply not think of themselves as part of the collective West anymore. To me, this is no more than 50 years away. I'll say somewhere in the 2070s. Unless somehow Europe bogs these countries back down into their squabbles. Moving on from that, you have soft power. Anglophone soft power is, in my view, their biggest strength. Thanks to the British Empire, the English language is widely spoken first, second, or third as languages. It has massive numbers of speakers in countries all over the place. The usual suspects, yes, but also the Caribbean, India, Philippines, Belize, Guyana, South Africa, Singapore, Nigeria, Kenya, and others. It's all over the place. It's also the common language of business that forces people to at least learn some words, even as their fourth language. Then you have things like music, pop culture, celebrities, movies, clothes, you name it. The soft power through even corporations such as Google, Apple, or Coca-Cola is all about Anglo soft power. Then there is hard power. Here you have probably the most distressing component of the Anglosphere, the military, the political one. It works for them, but it works if and only if in Europe the French and the Germans are subdued, or on the world stage the Russians, Indians, and Chinese are subdued. Well, the French and Germans are completely pacified and dependent on the Anglosphere for, well, almost all the security. The challenge comes with countries like India, China, and Russia. They are not Anglo, although all three have seen some kind of Anglospheric invasion in the past. India for about 100 years, China for about 100 years, and Russia for about five years, during their civil war after the revolution. Interestingly, all these countries have taken what they like from the Anglosphere, India, language, China, trade, Russia, communism. They all have a number of different ties to the cultural Anglosphere, but retain geopolitical issues with that same Anglo-Saxon sphere, in particular the wars since and indeed before and after the fall of the USSR. The US today, 2022, underwrites the security for the Anglosphere and the collective West generally. It, alongside the collective West in the form of the NATO military alliance, is an offensive power designed to propagate Western mostly Anglo-hard power. Certain signs indicate a relative decline in this power, in particular with the US dollar hegemony. It's relative to the rise of China. Unlike the transfer of power in the 1950s and 1960s from the UK to the US, both Anglo countries, this time it is to China, a civilizationally different product altogether. Geopolitically, this is the single biggest threat to the Anglosphere since 1991. So my take is that Anglo soft power will not only prevail, but thrive. Demographic changes in the Anglosphere itself will ultimately end the political Anglosphere and the rise of China will be the single biggest shock to the otherwise, and I air quote here, master race. Remember what I said at the top of this episode. Almost 18% of the world's landmass 
is one of the five Anglo countries at just 6% of the world's population, but they collectively consist of 33% of the world's military spend. Can the dwindling 6% Anglo population still sustain the 33% military spend to keep the 18% landmass? Can they convince Latinos, Indians, Chinese, Quebec, Irish, and others that the defense of the Anglosphere is a worthy endeavor? That's it for this episode. Please like, subscribe on your platform of choice. See you next time. Thank you very much.